honestly, that is nuts. But we're back. Hello. We are. We are back. How are you guys doing? Well, I guess we should introduce the show first time. Huh? Right, they just <laughs> heard, probably, they heard, they just heard like a third voice, and it's like, who is that? No, we always have three people. What are you talking always. about? Yeah, the ghost of Mark. Yeah. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Jacob Shop, and as always, Evan Roosh is here. Howdy. And today we have a third special guest. It is my very good buddy, Dylan Greenhill. What's good? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right, man. You excited to podcast? <laughs> I'm very excited to podcast. Let's go. First Let's timer. You got a first timer podcast virgin on, a, on well, the airwaves. Pop, pop the podcast cherry, bud. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but Dylan is the vocalist in a band called Vapid Soul. They yes, just released their first single a couple months ago now. Mm-hmm. Yep, back in July. Yes, yeah. congrats, congrats. And thank you. Thank but you. they are a very cool metalcore band. Thank you. And did you want to talk about it at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Vapid Soul is uh, now actually a five-piece, um, a five-piece like new metalcore band uh, influence from Slipknot, Korn, you know, the OGs, but also pulling new influences from bands like Kane Hill, uh, Plot and You, uh, and uh, probably <clears throat> a little bit of Motionless and White and Alpha Wolf, too. Hell Yeah. Yep. Love it. So podcasting should be a breeze if you actually perform in front of like real you people. You would think. You would think. <laughs> He's used to screaming at people. So. Yeah, I'm used right. to screaming at people and telling them to like, you know, split it down the middle and you know, don't don't go home unless you're sending somebody home in a body bag. <laughs> you know? So we'll try to we'll it. try to apply that here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jacob, you go on that bring, side. Yes, I'll bring that energy. Side. <laughs> yeah. Talk about Evan and I are going to do a live two person wall of death. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? And like, it's just like audio only, so just it's just AS- us like. Stop it. All you hear in the background just stop. like, fuck, ASMR. the table broke. <laughs> <laughs> like, what happened? Uh, but we are very happy to have Dylan here with us today. It's going to be a super exciting one. I am so glad to have finally finished the notes for this episode because, man, is it's, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a hefty boy. Well, you said, what was it, 12 pages? Yeah, I had 11 pages of notes. And <laughs> oh my God. All I, right. I was going to go longer with it, too, but I was like, I'm going to cut a lot of this out just, <laughs> just for clarity, because otherwise it gets even more muddy. Oh, man. But I read an entire book, an entire 200-page thesis, like every internet source I could find, oh a bunch God. of stuff from Reddit. Like I was trying to find everything I could to put this story as cleanly as possible, and I hope I did a good job. See, but. this is why I'm glad that I chose not to know what we're talking about, because now I'm just more excited. Like, yeah. This is going to be great. Oh, hello. There's also a dog here. Yeah. <laughs> this is Zooks. I know that you guys can't obviously see here because this is a podcast and not a TV show, but, you know, there's a dog here. She's our audience member. Oh, yeah. They know Zooks. They know oh, Zooks. But today, if you couldn't tell by the title of the episode, we are talking about Elizabeth Bathory. So Elizabeth Bathory, all right. Do you know who that is? Yes and no. I've heard the name. I'm drawing a blank, though. Okay, Evan has done a little bit of research. I I can't imagine how you did all, like, you went down the rabbit hole yeah. on this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I did a little research myself and just, like... It's a, it's a whole ass mess. It's a creepy one. No, We're already, go. like, almost <laughs> in the spooky season, so all this right, is good. Let's go. So ready. But you might have heard the name Bathory before. There is mm-hmm. actually a an OG black metal band called Bathory yep. that was one of the first to kind of pioneer the genre of black metal. If you don't know what black metal is, you, this means nothing to you. But <laughs> <laughs> their first album is one of like my favorite black metal records, so that's kind of cool. Sick. But Elizabeth Bathory is the Guinness Book of World Record holder for the most prolific female murderer. 
credited with 600 murders that's literally the most wild like why is that why is getting it's like right next to the guy with the longest nails or something (laughs) yeah yeah, right the most time spent playing a video game straight and the most prolific female killer all right oh my god the most people going super (laughs) sand at the same time yes (laughs) so the description on the guinness website it follows in part as thus the most prolific female murderer and the most prolific murderer of the western world was elizabeth bathory who practiced vampirism on girls and young women. She is alleged to have killed more than 600 virgins in order to drink their blood and bathe in it, ostensibly to preserve her youth. It's always virgins, man. Like, you <laughs> it's o- always virgins. Honestly, just having sex was just a not be like, like, just... subjected to this. Like, All right, well, we're not doing this with them, so let's try this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not fucking, let's kill them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! And if there's seriously, any, my god, six hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot. Uh, and if there's anything right. that you possibly might know about Elizabeth Bathory, it is the story of her bathing in young girls' blood. That's like the most popular part of her mythos. Mm-hmm. But being that the story takes place over four hundred years ago, uh, it's kind of hard to distinguish what is fact and what is fiction right. on her story. Uh, sources are many and varied, as I've found out doing this. And a lot of people seemingly have a personal investment in either her innocence or her guilt by the end of the research that they do. So both sides have developed their own very vocal spokespeople to defend or condemn Elizabeth. So it's very difficult to find the facts in all of that. And the culture that she was raised in, as well as the legal structure of Hungary at the time period, makes everything even more complicated. So today, the goal is to try and clean the mud off this story and give the cleanest possible picture of who Elizabeth Bathory truly was and if she deserves the moniker of the most prolific murderer of the Western world. So that's our goal today. All right. (laughs) I mean, it's quite the title to have. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. So before we get into the episode proper, I want to list my two main sources. The first one was that thesis paper that I mentioned, which is called No Blood in the Water, The Legal and Gender Conspiracies Against Countess Elizabeth Bathory in Historical Context by Rachel Bledsaw. And then I also read a book by Tony Thorne called Countess Dracula. The titles of those two sources are just so vast. I was going to say, like, they're just on the opposite ends of the spectrum. You can tell which right. one's an academic thesis paper and which one is a book. Right. <laughs> very much so. They are both very good reads in their own respects. Obviously, the thesis paper is much more academically written mm-hmm. and much more to the point, whereas uh, Tony Thorne's book is very descriptive. It gives a lot of background information on who the people are, the mm-hmm. setting that it all takes place in. And his book kind of has an agenda to it, which most of the books about her do. So Rachel Bledsaw's paper is actually more of a response to books like his and other like major books that people use for her. So I kind of used them back and forth to try and get like a story and then also to get the debunking of the story. So that's what we're going to do today. All right. All right. Are you guys ready to officially get into this? Let's go. A little bit, yeah. Very scared already, to be honest. (laughs) Well, don't get scared yet, because first we're just going to talk about Hungary and the time period, because it's very important to understand where she grew up and what this area of the world was like. Oh, you mean provide context? Yes, context is very important, (laughs) because we could just jump in and tell you, hey, she killed a bunch of people, but you kind of need to know the the time period first. All right. (laughs) So, decades before she was born, it... 
in the year 1514, there was peasant groups in Hungary that were rising up to fight against the oppressive serfdom that they found themselves in. And serfdom means that they were serfs. Mm. And if you don't know what a serf is, it's basically an indentured servant, and it's barely above a slave. Like, not that far off. Gotcha. You get, uh, it's like you get bread at the end of the day. It's yeah. like, thank you for yeah. doing bre- like backbreaking Please work say, here. I have some more. Yeah. More! <laughs> Uh, so the only real difference between serfs and slaves is that serfs are bound to the land mm-hmm. that, and they couldn't be sold like as a person. They could only be sold, their labor could be sold. They couldn't okay. be sold like whole, wholesale as themselves. Oh. And serfs also had the opportunity to buy their freedom if they somehow accumulated enough money to do so. Mm-hmm. But in Hungary, the serfs were smashed back down when they tried to revolt, and all of the leaders of the revolt were executed. Which had a big impact Dang. across Hungary because obviously there's just a rebellion, got to tighten up restrictions on everything after that. Right. And these changes would impact Elizabeth and the Bathory clan as a whole in quite a big way. In 1517, three years after the uprising, mm-hmm. Hungary passed an official legal code known as, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's the tripartitum. Something, that, that's how it's spelled, so I'm going to go with that. But this was kind of like their Magna Carta, like the official set of rules for mm. the time period, kind of establishing took, some sort of system. <laughs> took them to 1610 to get that one down. 1517. <laughs> or 1517. Your whole decade, or century off. Evan. Ah, nuts. Oh, my lord. So this new code defined the rights and privileges of the nobles, different mm. legal procedures to follow, and the rights and privileges of the serfs, which, if you couldn't guess, had been drastically reduced from their already limited status after the revolt. Mm. So, while a new set of laws is a good thing, Hungary as a whole was very much struggling in other ways. Because the New World of America had just been discovered, and that meant that Europe was taking advantage of the exports that this New World brought in, such as potatoes, corn, and precious minerals. Can you imagine just seeing a potato for the first time and just, what do I do with this? Do I throw it? Can I bake this? Can I bake this? Imagine fries. just not knowing a make, like a baked potato. It's just, right. That's just weird for me to think about. That's just so common. Yeah. Wow. Imagine have the first person in Europe to have a baked potato. Mind blown. <laughs> guys, 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 check this out. It's like when the yeah, camera, yeah, hear me out. It's the yeah. camera like zooming in on their eyes and it's just like a galaxy exploding and then it zooms back out and it's just a, a baked potato. It? It's like GIF of, um, what is it, Tim and Eric Awesome show? Great job. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So with these being major exports of Hungary, its economy was struggling and it started falling behind the rest of the Western European countries. And at the same time, the Ottoman Turks showed up, which is a Muslim nation from modern-day Turkey that came north into Hungary and started raising hell. So they swept into southern Hungary and decisively defeated the Hungarian forces at the Battle of Mohawks. And Hungary lost over half of its 35,000 men in the battle including the 20-year-old Hungarian king, while the Turks only lost 2,000 of its force of 60,000. Oh, so, man. So they got the floor mop with them. Yeah. yeah. Got it. So it was a very one-sided affair. Ooh. Since Hungary was left with no ruler after this battle, because the former ruler, Louis II, who was killed in the battle, had no heir, and it lost a good portion of its southern territory to the Turks, the official council of Hungary convened to get a new king elected as soon as possible. And instead of electing a single king, they decided to elect two kings. Always works well when there's two people in power. Like, hey, it worked you know, in, the popes. It worked in Both Sparta, but <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think these people are going to have the same 
translation into two kings of Spartans. Right. Like these people don't have as good of abs as no. the Spartans did. <laughs> not no. as much homosexuality in Hungary at the time. <laughs> that too. Sparta. Not even. <laughs> they just had, you know, bathing in virgin's blood in this country, though. Very different sizes. <laughs> no, but in Sparta, they just said, hey, nice cock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first king elected, whose name was John Zappoli, Zappoli, yes, staked his rule in the eastern part of Hungary, which was known as Transylvania. Transylvania, where the vampires are from, obviously. While the other king, Ferdinand I, claimed the throne in the west and the north under the umbrella of the Austrian Habsburg name in what will be known as Royal Hungary. So now we have Royal Hungary, Transylvania, and then the southern portion controlled by the Turks. So effectively, Hungary was split into three sections with all three of them fighting one another at the same time. Oh my God. So this meant that Hungary was not only fighting a civil war, but it was also fighting a foreign war. All at once. I thought I was booked up like this I week. I was going to say, I thought I was busy this week. No, they had, they had it. They were busy. Yes. My God. <laughs> and the Habsburgs, if you don't know, are a ruling family in Europe that ruled the uh, Holy Roman Empire for like 900 years. So they've been around for a while. And oh they God. there's a reason it became the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that's where this kind of comes in. But yeah, that's all going on right now. So there are various attempts to reunite Hungary, but ultimately never worked out. Mm. And the territorial split of Hungary also split the Bathory family because the official family seat was in Transylvania, but they also had a big power holding in Royal Hungary as well. So now they're kind of going back and forth between the two sections of Hungary to try and figure out, well, who's loyal to who and where are we going to settle down? The Bathory clan was extremely wealthy and when i say extremely wealthy it's like bill gates jeff bezos wealthy but like back then it's it's insane so in a time when owning one estate made you considered wealthy the Mm -hmm. bathories owned dozens of estates (laughs) and thousands of acres of land all the people in the country are like where's the money like oh they have it it's in my pocket yeah (laughs) i swear And when the tripartitum was established, it was quite beneficial to noble families like the Bathories. Because in a society where violence was recognized and accepted, higher social standing meant everything. Because as a matter of course, interpersonal violence outside of war and judicial punishment could be public or private. So public violence usually never strayed outside of social class, meaning that non-nobles could literally never confront a noble. If they did, you're just asking to be killed. And if a noble confronted someone of lower standing, it was looked down upon, but they rarely received any consequences other than a little mark on their social stigma. Right. Good times, right? The feudal system. (laughs) My God. The good old feudal system. (laughs) The system isn't broken. (laughs) Just like another classic example of where would you travel to in history? It's like. Not no, Hungary, not, there. not not anywhere. Not really. there. 16th century Hungary, that's you for sure. Know, Unless right. I'm part of the Bathory clan. <laughs> I swear. If you're part of the nobility, like, yeah, this is tight. Exactly. <laughs> so most of the time, this public violence was confined to men, but there are a few records of women being perpetrators as well. Whereas men usually dueled and used weapons, women usually slapped, bit, or scratched. <laughs> so you got world star hip hop. Right. Cat fights in Hungary. All right. Sort of like dirty, like in the trenches type fighting. Oh, yeah. Like There's hair pulling and all biting. that. Biting. Nice to know some things never changed. All, right. <laughs> human beings throughout the years are the same as they've always been. We just have new stuff to use. Right. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Brains are, haven't advanced at all. Nope. 
So most of the time, a lot of this public violence was just kind of a conflict way to save face for yourself because you're not going to get beat up in the streets by some random person. But those rules that those are the rules that applied to public violence. In private, nobles could discipline their servants in whatever way they saw fit, with beatings considered necessary since servants were looked at as unfit specimens of humanity. Like Man, I said, it's a I, culture of violence. My God. <laughs> like, you really weren't kidding. We were going all in on this one. All right. Yeah. yeah. It, oh, it's going to get Man. way more bloody and violent as we go. Yeah, I was, was going to say, we're just getting started. Oh, yes. My God. All yeah. right. Literally just. We're in it for the long haul. Let's go. <laughs> you didn't own land or had some money. Like, you had zero rights. Yeah. I swear. Like, zero rights. You Man. were part of the land. Like, it's wild. No money? All right. Well, you're just kind of here then. If you get smacked in the face, I don't know what to tell you, man. Yeah. Unfit specimen of humanity. That's just, yeah, that's, that's a powerful line. Yeah. But since the nobles were oh so high and mighty, it was unbecoming of them to maim or kill their servants in the act of sorting out these punishments. So they had restrictions. <laughs> you just can't. You can beat them within an inch of their life, but they still have to be within that inch. Yep. You've got to make sure to they can still work the land. Yeah, right? My God. And since these punishments were private punishments, they were rarely witnessed. And if they were witnessed, it was by other servants who weren't going to say anything. <laughs> Legal action was rarely taken against servants, and it was preferred to just dismiss them rather than take them into a legal proceeding. Because what, what's the point? You can get another servant. Right, right. you're not going to sue someone that doesn't have any money. Like, what would that <laughs> legal proceeding your, be? Give me yeah. your 10 coins. I yeah. Swear. And on the opposite side, servants weren't allowed to bring any charges against the noble which was an extremely advantageous situation for someone like Elizabeth Bathory. So, <laughs> you, if you're a serf, you are sh pretty much SOL when it comes to defending yourself or having any rights. And it was indeed into this society, which followed the concept of schadenfreude, and <laughs> the concept of schadenfreude... Did it's you just say, what's up, shoddy? What? <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. So it's the that's a German word for the concept of finding humor in someone else's misfortune. So oh, okay. it's not necessarily like laughing when people die. It's more so like when we see a YouTube video of a guy getting struck by a rolling tire in, like at, on YouTube or whatever. So ridiculous. And, yes. All right. Yeah. And, yeah. and we la when you laugh at someone getting hurt and ridiculous, like yep. that's what schadenfreude is. And this culture also obviously accepted violence as a natural part of everyday life. And this is where our legendary Countess was born. So, give you a couple nicknames for Elizabeth right off the bat. So we have Countess Dracula, obviously, mm -hmm. as Tony Thorne's book has so, light, so lovely given us. And it was also the Blood Countess and the Bloody Lady of Chaktish. So no, like, Liz or nope. <laughs> Lizzie. Nope, not those nicknames. <laughs> so on the seventh day in the month of August in the year of our Lord, 1560, Elizabeth Bathory was born. She was born to George and Anna Bathory, or Anna Bathory, I don't know. There was no pronunciation, but either way, they were cousins. And Gotta keep it in the family. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Inbreeding was relatively common in noble families around this time period, so it's not super surprising. Looking at you, England. <laughs> Looking at you, the Habsburg family, as a, they, ooh. Oh, ooh. They, they, like, 
they to had quote, a, to quote them, they like to keep the bloodline pure. They had a like, whole, end of quotes. They had a whole like abnormality in physique in physique named after them called the Habsburg jaw. So I oh mean, that's God. how much inbreeding they did. Not related to the crimson chin. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. You said where's Cosmo? Yeah. <laughs> Anna's brother was the king of Poland, and George was the lord of multiple counties. So, right off the bat, you can see that they're very well off. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth was the second child with an older brother named Stephen and two younger sisters named Clara and Sophia. And I'm using all of the Anglo, like the Anglo-Saxon versions of their names because, oh, I tried to learn how to pronounce Hungarian names for this, and Tony Thorne even puts like a translation guide like four certain letters in the front of the book and I had to keep scrolling back and forth and I, was, I just gave up. So I'm oh, using the I'm using the Anglo Saxon names. Yeah, good call. Like Elizabeth the way that her name is spelt, it's Erzabet. Yeah, it's Erzabet. Yeah. Or that. I tried I literally watched videos on how to do a Hungarian accent and I could not figure it out. It's just it's hard. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> fair fair enough. That's all right. So Tony Thorne, I thought this was funny, made a note in his book about Clara and Sophia, her sisters, Mm. that both of them married middle-ranked noblemen and died without any kids. And that was the only thing he said about them. Oof. Not a good legacy. Nope, that's it. That's all you get. The family was Protestant, and specifically the sect of Calvinism was their chosen Protestant religion that they followed. And this meant a couple of things, one of which was that the family invested in making sure that the, ed- the kids were educated. So outside of education, Elizabeth supposedly enjoyed a normal aristocratic childhood for a Hungarian girl. She enjoyed horseback riding, reading, and playing dress up. And it was also said that she was somewhat of a tomboy and liked to hang around with the boys her age, but would also turn right around and wear fancy clothes and jewelry and get nice and dressed up too. So she can really do it all. Wow. She's a girl of many talents. All right. <laughs> Around this time, when Elizabeth was young, she was exposed to death and brutality by her older brother, who is said to be an alcoholic tavern brawler. Why is it always the alcoholic that it starts with? <laughs> Why does it always start there? Yeah, every yeah. single time. Man. And then her Aunt Clara showed up who was said to be a bisexual witch and murderous <laughs> of 400... witch. I'm dating one of those. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, when you start off with the, the term bisexual witch, I'm like, I want one of those. <laughs> Dude, they're great. But they're then they also time. say that she murdered four of her husbands. And so, notice, notice which uh, one was said know. second. So like, <laughs> <laughs> like in the book, I'm sure that's probably how she was introduced. <laughs> bisexual witch. Bisexual witch. But if and the, also killed four people. But, uh, if I yeah, can no, find so, a bisexual... Like minor details. Okay, <laughs> if, if I was murdered by a bisexual witch, I guess I, if that's how I go, so be it. <laughs> You're just laying there like, oh no, it's a real shame. <laughs> oh no, please, stop, don't. <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so her aunt apparently instructed Elizabeth on all types of torture, sexual experiences, and encouraged occult practices. When she was still young... It was said that Elizabeth witnessed a Romani man sewed into the belly of a horse up to his neck and left to die as punishment for a crime. That is oh my. straight out of, like, that's, American Horror Story. I was going to say, that's American Horror Story Saw vibes, uh, majorly. I, oh, we hit, there's more than one connection to American Horror Story in this. this. I'm sure there is. If, this is, <laughs> if we got 600 of these, we're in for a ride. <laughs> oh and we're going to go one by one by, by one. one by one. <laughs> <laughs> just gonna want to like call my mom after I this. Swear. Yeah. I want to go home, honey. <laughs> I, I love home. you. 
And the rest of the family wasn't much better, worshipping Satan and, as according to Tony Thorne, chasing ghosts. Satan! <laughs> Which is like, I did that, so I guess I'm not that good either. Did they ever well, catch the ghosts? <laughs> I, I don't think they were Scooby-Doo in this shit. Uh... Also, due to the inbreeding of her parents, it was said that Elizabeth may have suffered seizures due to epilepsy. They really did take a long time to figure out that, hey, if you marry your cousin and or brother and or relative, like, the kid might have some issues. <laughs> yeah. Like, why me- is, like, severe medical issues. Why is this happening to all of us? Yeah. Hey, hey man, are you looking okay? I can't look. Like, what do you mean? You, are you all right? <laughs> one of my eyes is up there. Yeah. The other one doesn't even open, yeah. so. Hey, yo, you want to get that fly? Where? The one in the corner. What corner? The one that's the one that my eyeball is just staring at. <laughs> you don't see that up all the way over there? Dude, it's back there. Like. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, the Bathories were unimaginably wealthy, and this meant that their daughter Elizabeth would ideally marry someone else of high nobility and wealth as well. Elizabeth had an advantage in this aspect, considering she was not only said to be beautiful in addition to fabli- fabulously wealthy, but she was also very well educated. She knew how to read and write in Hungarian, Greek, Latin, and German, which was exceptional for a woman at the time. And it's also, I feel like, exceptional for a woman now. I feel like that's like, at least for, for that's my standard, because I can speak one and a half languages. Yeah, I was going to say, I can barely get through a couple sentences of Spanish, yep. and that's about it. As the listeners know, I can barely speak English. Like, <laughs> yeah. I swear. You guys like have heard us time. talk for 86 episodes, so like, you for know. Almost two years. Wow. Yeah. I can't believe you guys have done that in many episodes already. That's crazy. Wow. We out that here. That is kind of nuts. As they say, fuck it, we ball. Fuck it, we ball. That's <laughs> <laughs> we say for every episode. Yes, exactly. That's what I say for my entire life. Like, I get up in the morning and fuck it, we ball. Let's go. <laughs> when Elizabeth was around 11, her family approached the Nadasdi family with an offer of marriage. Francis Nadasdi, the son of the family, was 15 at the time and was making a name for himself at the court of Vienna. So Elizabeth's parents weren't offering marriage to Francis immediately, but rather they were giving him the first choice to marry Elizabeth if he wanted to. So this wasn't necessarily a proposal for a marriage. It was just them saying, hey, our daughter is an eligible bachelorette. If you want to marry her, we're giving you first dibs. That's how it worked, I guess. You're a fucked up little trophy. You want it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about the shaking. She, it's fine. Hey, listen, don't she, worry just, about... she just saw a flickering flame. Listen, and started... sometimes she just kind of collapses and lays there for a second. She'll be fine. It's She'll fine. be fine. Just rub some date in it. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and Francis accepted his choice and agreed to marry Elizabeth. Aww. So a little background on the Nadasti family. They were also quite wealthy, if you couldn't guess, though they only recently graduated to the status of senior aristocracy. Thomas Nadasti, Francis's father, was the Palatine of Royal Hungary, which was the highest official position behind the foreign king and his wife. So, very high status. It was said that Ursula, Francis's mother, had problems conceiving and Francis almost didn't survive the birthing process. But this is one of my favorite things in the book. A doctor assisted with the birth, and the doctor had the unbelievably cool name of Praximus. Praximus. We went from Thomas to, to Francis. Imagine going to your doctor and his name is Praximus. That is fucking cool. I'm what trusting his last him name with Zion? Like, I'm <laughs> Hello, I'm the Dr. Praximus. I am Dr. Praximus. Let me count the ways that you will suck the blood from your enemy. Dracula. <laughs> like, my God. He was either, this guy was either an unbelievable nerd or like the coolest guy ever. So that's the only two options. Truly no That's in it. between. <laughs> there is no in between with that. 
Uh, and thus, the Nadasdis had their heir, and he was a smart one. Francis could read and write by the age of five, and he lost his father at the age of six. And after he lost his father, he was sent to the courts in Vienna at the age of 12. And by 13, he was hunting with the noble, ch- the noble family of the Habsburgs. So he's hunting with the children of the king. He's in. Yeah, he's in. By 17, he was said to be one of the most promising nobles in Vienna with a bright future. So Elizabeth and Francis waited two, four years before getting married. While Francis finished up his times at the Viennese court, Elizabeth was sent to Sarvar, where the Nadasdi family seat was, and she learned to manage the vast estates that she would be responsible for and was taught household duties. So they're pretty much giving her prep school on how to be a wife. Hmm. And essentially run basically the country? Yeah. Because they had the most money. You're like, running that's a, a multinational, cor- well, kind of multinational corporation because Hungary's split into three sections. Right. So. You're running Amazon. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> in 1572, a list of Elizabeth's possessions given to the Nedasdi family showed that one of her estates contained over 60 gemstones between diamonds, sapphires, and all that good stuff, almost 300 pearls, and 31,000 florins in cash, which, if I did my research correctly, is the equivalent to $1.3 million. At just one of them. Just one of them. And she's 15. Oh, my God. I don't even know what I would do with that much money at 15. I don't know what I would do with that much money now. That shows you how wealthy her family is. Honestly, if this is me, I'm probably buying like a Nintendo Wii. (laughs) But she she decided to take it in a different direction. (laughs) In this time frame, Elizabeth most likely didn't see her fiancé very often, which meant she had a lot of time to herself. And stories tell of an affair Elizabeth had with a local peasant boy, which caused her to become pregnant and give birth to an illegitimate child. Ooh. Scandalous. Scandalous. Regardless, Elizabeth and Francis were married on May 8th, 1575, when Elizabeth was 15 and Francis was 19. Their wedding was said to be extremely lavish with, guess how many guests? I'm getting thousands, probably. How many, though? I'm guessing at least like four or five. Yep, 4,500. Oh my 4, God. 4,500 guests. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and that's not including all of the serfs who could celebrate on their own in oh the town. My God. So uh, I didn't even 4,500 guests. Yep. <laughs> I can't even imagine that, Bill. And the feasting, dancing, and the games lasted for three days. Three days. That's so, three days of drinking for including, including the serfs, like what? 6,000 people? Oh. 7,000 people? Talk about open bar bills. Oh, my God. I probably wouldn't make it out alive. <laughs> if we're being quite I don't think famous. a lot of people would have made it out alive. <laughs> Elis- yeah. Elizabeth, after the marriage, officially kept her name, which was apparently a custom at the time in Hungary, but most of the people that referred to her called her Lady Nadasdi. So the two lived a wealthy and privileged life for years. However, Francis was gone most of the time because starting in 1578, he was off regularly fighting the Turks while Elizabeth managed the estates. The first 10 years of the marriage yielded no children, so the couple may have turned to some fertility rituals at the time. So I'm going to list a couple of those that Tony Thorne gives in his book. Oh boy. This is is always fun. Oh, this is... This just reminds me of the Kellogg guy. Like, yeah, or the Donner party. <laughs> whenever Jacob brings up, whenever Jacob says, I'm going to start listing things, I just know at this point to like it's brace all, myself. It's, it's always fun. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. So to help women conceive, 
They were supposed to try watching a cat lick its genitals, sprinkle a tortoise with cold water, or buy an appropriate magic stone or relic. In order to help build desire in a woman, she may be fed a mixture of the powdered heart of a dove, the liver of a sparrow, the womb of a swallow, and a rabbit's kidney mixed with drops of her husband's blood. And on the male side of the spectrum, aphrodisiacs may have consisted of slipping fireflies into the man's food. The sprinkle, like all of the rest what? of them are just, whoa. But like sprinkling, <laughs> sprinkling, sprinkling a tortoise, tortoise on the <laughs> Like, was the tortoise just well, like, yeah, that, thank you. Dude, <laughs> thank if you I see my much. cat cleaning, cleaning itself by cleaning her butthole, I'm not going to, what? <laughs> yeah. You got to watch that, otherwise dude, you're I, not going to have kids. Get yeah. out of my way. Like, no, stop doing that in the middle of the floor. Like, go over there and do that. that <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm having such a hard time wrapping my head around that What's one. What's so hard to understand about that? <laughs> Lizzie's just watching a cat like, get it, Mr. Sprinkles. <laughs> but whatever the case, Elizabeth eventually bore five children, three of which survived past infancy and into adulthood, and they were named Anna, Kate, and Paul. Again, uh, Proximus was also in the story, and now say, we have Hello, Paul. I'm here to deliver your children as well. And now we have, hi, I'm Paul. I like, just gonna say the first thing that comes to my head is that monkey from Jimmy Neutron. Hey, they, they, if they came out with three eyes, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I guess they're not inbreeding anymore, so they probably were okay. I, I hope so. Yeah. Although Francis needed to be away so much, he was no slouch in his military life, gaining the nickname of the Black Bay of Hungary for his ferocity in destroying the Turks. He was and still is considered a national hero. Stories of his immense physical strength were said to be otherworldly. One of his main companions in battle was a man named George Thurzo, who will become much more important later in the story. But it was around 1591 that the 15 Years' War broke out, and Hungary was devastated by population loss and famine. And it hurt even more because the war basically gained Hungary nothing. So, 15 years of fighting, giant losses in population, for nothing to show. Man. And now they come back and there's no food. Yeah. It's a rough time, as I mentioned, in Hungary. What the hell, Proximus? <laughs> yeah, why aren't you saving more people, bro? Yeah. yeah, what are you doing? Since the Habsburgs were paying the Turks a huge sum of money annually to keep the Ottomans from taking the rest of royal Hungary, Francis and Elizabeth had to provide a loan to the Habsburg family to help fund the war effort and pay the soldiers, a loan that they would never get paid back on. Those are always interesting when you hear like the, like, the giving out of loans, which happens out or just happens a ton, like, you're not going to get the money back if they lose. <laughs> or right. even if they do win, they just have no money. And I can't imagine being wealthy enough to loan the king of an entire empire money to help fight a war. Yeah, right. And you know the crazy part, too, is that when they didn't get paid back, they probably were just like, meh. Yeah, it's just like a, a little bit of a mark. You have right. so much money that you can pay an entire country and just... Not even worry about it. It's the equivalent it. to modern day where you have a ton of money sitting in your PayPal and you forget about it for a long time. Then you look in there one day and you're like, oh shit, I had $2,000 sitting in here this whole time. I swear. I swear. While Elizabeth was home on her own, it was said that she added a few members to her entourage who would be integral to her later story. One of these was a teenage boy named Fitzko, and the other was a woman named Anna Darvulia. Anna Darvulia, or Anna Dorvula, whichever one you want to think is right, because they're both right. I'm going to go Dorvula. That one's funny. It is funnier. <laughs> yeah. 
was added to the household somewhere between 1595 and 1601 and was made part of Elizabeth's household court shortly after. She was put in charge of domestic arrangements around the castle. However, she was also said to be one of the worst when it came to how she would punish the servants. A few of the servants in the household who were later put on trial confessed that Anna Dorvila was indeed Elizabeth's guide and inspiration in torturing. Although torturing was said to be a common practice in the Dasty household before 1605, Anna is notable because the local priests even made mention of her in letters between each other, saying that a decision must be made regarding, quote, the admonition of His Excellency, Lord Francis Nadasdi, and his wife for their acts of cruelty, and there is a woman about whom everyone knows who the lady uses as her assistant in that place. One of the priests even made an accusation from the pulpit denouncing the couple for what he called, quote, tyrannical cruelty practiced by their court, or in their court, by an evil woman, end quote. So it's like everyone knows about this. Like this is everyone not... knows that Anna Dorvila is a terrible person. Yeah, man, it is not a well kept secret. <laughs> I, I tried to keep your reputation by giving you a funny last name. Honey, but <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> well, and it was like the, it, they tried to figure out what her la- like what Darvula, mm-hmm. Darvulia might mean, mm-hmm. and apparently in Slovak it, it vaguely translates to like medicine woman. So her oh, name that's even... her name was supposed Whoa. to mean that she was a healer, like a supposed to be a healer so <laughs> yeah. a little bit irony there something got lost in translation she there. heard bloodletting and went way too far with it hey so that's yeah. what i mean right <laughs> no no, <laughs> no. <laughs> leeches we meant leeches, leeches. <laughs> but you mean like let all the blood out yeah yeah, yeah, yeah these people are leeches you're right i'll be harsher <laughs> right some say that if anna dorvila did not take up residence with elizabeth it may have never gotten as bad as it did To be fair, Francis himself taught Elizabeth a way to rouse servants by rolling pieces of oiled paper between a servant's toes and lighting it on fire. But Francis never let the punishments for servants cause death. So perhaps Anna just sped the process up. But regardless, she was soon to be one of Elizabeth's sole companions. So as you can see, I can't state this enough. Violence is a norm in this society. Gosh, that's so sad. It is. While most of the surviving documents we have from Elizabeth consist of letters on household duties and trades, some of them are communications between Francis and Elizabeth while he was on the battlefield. And all of them are very matter-of-fact, stating the health of the children and not much else, which leads researchers to believe that she may have been pretty cold and distant in her family life. In March of 1601, Francis was in the capital, and was said to be afflicted by an illness that caused him pain in his legs. He recovered shortly after, and until late 1603, he was pretty much fine. But in 1604, Francis was basically on his deathbed again. So he sent a letter to his old companion, George Thurzo, who I mentioned earlier, on January 3rd, 1604, asking George to take care of the well-being of his family after he passed away. And the next day, Francis was dead. Damn. So now Elizabeth is on her own. Now the no one to really check her. <laughs> yep. I am so lonely. <laughs> now that Elizabeth was left alone, she needed to figure out how to run these vast estates completely on her own. And in a world where a woman was expected to remain isolated for a year after their husband's death, 
Elizabeth went out and bought red mourning clothes and continued on. And upon Francis's death, she was not receiving war bounties from him anymore. Because it was said that when he was off at battle, when mm-hmm. he would kill people, he would take their stuff and send it back home to Elizabeth. Oh. And she would make money <laughs> off of that. So, well, that I mean, she sense. had like a secondary source of income. It's like Facebook much. Marketplace. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Except dead people's stuff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, in addition to her losing out on her parents' inheritance when her brother passed away, meant that she was forced to try and trade to keep her coffers full. In her letters around this time, her communications are much more stern than before perhaps due to the necessity to keep the funds allocated properly. Mm -hmm. These stresses and newfound social pressure as a widow may have pushed her to take her actions towards servants to the next level. Someone could have just got her like a stress ball, maybe. Right. A fidget spinner. (laughs) Just go outside. Yeah, just go. Just go outside. Touch, the, touch grass, girl. Yeah, go I was about to grass. say this is the first time someone said go touch grass. <laughs> I'm just inside playing medieval version of N64 too much. What do you mean? <laughs> so I'm going to start getting into some of the descriptions of the torture and violence perpetrated against the servants now. So for those of you listening, if you don't want to hear some of that, you might not want to listen to the next like 15, 20 minutes because it's gonna be a lot. But just know that none of it's good. <laughs> so I'm going to go upstairs now. <laughs> yeah. All right. This has been fun. I'm out. <laughs> so if you're not a fan of like serial killer episodes, then I, this might not be the episode for you to listen to it, right. honestly. But that's going to be starting now. So just a warning. Okay. Y'all thought that was the gruesome stuff. Yeah. There we're we not go. even close yet. So one example of her treatment of servants was when she was traveling towards the capital and handed one of her German servants two potato biscuits to hold. When the servant girl ate one instead of just holding it, Elizabeth heated the other one until it was nearly on fire and shoved it into the girl's mouth as punishment. And in this instance, it wasn't fatal. In a confession later, one of the servants stated that, quote, Even when the master, meaning Francis, was alive, she had been torturing girls, but in those days she did not kill them as she does now. The poor master complained about this and he disapproved, but she did not care about the warning. And when Mistress Anna Dorvila came, that one started to kill the girls, and after that, the mistress herself became more and more cruel and wicked. End quote. I can't imagine just being that mad at somebody that you feel the need to heat up food and then shove it down their mouth to the point where it's just burning the inside of your mouth. I can't imagine how like blistered and just gross the inside of your mouth has to feel after something like that. Right. There's just no empathy. No, no. From, well, I mean, they from these people, they don't view them as humans. Absolutely. Like they're yeah. unfit human specimens. No. So, I mean, right. When you're not, when you take away that aspect, I mean, that's why serial killers kill people. Most of the time, it's like, they don't view them as humans. They just view them as something that they want to obtain most of the time. So, right. It's like that God complex. Yep. yep. It's truly insane. <laughs> One of the inciting incidents happened when a servant was brushing Elizabeth's hair. As the girl was brushing, she caught a snag in Elizabeth's hair, which caused Elizabeth to erupt in anger and smack the young girl. She struck the girl hard enough to draw blood, which stayed on her hand, and later that night, Elizabeth noticed that the spot where the blood was on her hand looked more youthful. After this, it was a veritable killing spree. Elizabeth began to confine and torture girls regularly from this point with no regard for their survival. 
Girls were said to be taken from villages near and far, with her trusted servants going out and promising families to take their children to a better opportunity as a servant for a wealthy countess. None of these girls would return to their families alive. Just thinking you're going off to a better life, probably like education too. Yep. And then just having being the complete opposite. Yep. Girls who were brought to the castle would be taken to the cellar to await torture. Examples of this torture are many and varied, but much of the servants' confessions follow a similar trend. Now, I'm going to list the various details of torture, so just be prepared because this is going to be probably the worst part for graphic depictions of violence. So if you don't want to hear them, as I mentioned, skip ahead a few minutes. On the episode description, are you going to put, like, you know how you can put, like, E for explicit? Like, is there, like, an E square? (laughs) E plus. Like, really, yeah. I'll put EA Sports. It's in in the the game. game. (laughs) According to a book by Kimberly L. Craft, and this whole part that I'm going to read now is a quote from the book, what was perhaps the most shocking were allegations of exactly how these girls were being tortured and killed. Washed with and made to roll in nettles, pins stuck in their lips and under their fingernails, needles jammed into their shoulders and arms, floggings on the breast while held in chains, their hands, arms, and abdomens scorched with burning irons, chunks of flesh wrenched from their back with pliers, noses, lips, tongues, and fingers pierced with needles, mouths forced shut with clamps, flesh cut out of the buttocks and from between the shoulders and then cooked and served to them, flesh and private parts singed with candles, knives plunged into arms and feet, hands crushed and maimed, fingers cut off with scissors and shears, red-hot pokers shoved up vaginas, bodies beaten to death with cudgels, lashings until flesh fell from the bones, and girls made to stand stand naked in the cold, doused with water, or submerged up to their necks in icy rivers. End quote. That is vile. That's just like evil. Oh my god. That's just like true evil. In addition, Tony Thorne describes some of the methods as well. Elizabeths would cover girls in honey and left them out a day and night to be bitten by insects. And from one testimony, quote, They tortured in the following way. They tied the arms of the girls with Viennese cord. The woman called Mistress Anna Dorvila, who lives at Sarvar, tied their hands behind them, like the color of death their hands were, and they were beaten until their body was opened up. Their palms and the soles of their feet, they were beating for as long as 500 blows as they beat the other captive women. End quote. Man. It's brutal. That is... It's just heavy. Truly something that you can never wrap your mind around. No. We can never wrap our mind around that. It's just pure violence for the sake of violence. I was was gonna make a joke about like late late term abortions, but I felt like that was inappropriate. (laughs) So I I guess I shouldn't. Well, we said it now. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't make the joke. You know, I was saying that I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let everyone be clear: the joke was not made. It was never said. So as you can see, much of the punishment had to do with beating, cutting, and burning. And for women in this time period, most of the violence was usually relegated to blunt force objects, which is true for Bathory's case, but also extends past it and into the methods that were usually reserved for males, such as slicing and piercing. But the most interesting seems to be the ice bath, in which a girl would be stripped and thrown outside in the winter 
and had cold water poured on them until they froze to death. This wouldn't have allowed Elizabeth to take advantage of the main thing that she wanted from the girls, their blood. Mm. After the incident with the blood on her hand, it was said that Elizabeth would fill a tub with the massive amounts of blood from her victims and bathe in the blood of the young girls. The blood wasn't caught and put into the bathing tub was said to be so thick that ashes would have to be spread around the room to soak them up. Oh my god. So it's like spilling oil and you have to use sawdust to, to soak it up. She'd... I can't even imagine why... The thought process behind all of this is still so crazy. Like Soaking yourself in... Cause that analogy is really weird to think about like imagine soaking yourself in a tub filled with oil yeah right yeah and that's supposed to make me look younger no honey that's gonna dry your skin out like <laughs> we're being honest oil floats on water honey all this, all this could have been like avoided if just skincare products were around wow and you know hey, i did honey, my... just get the kylie jenner kit that's all you need <laughs> yeah. that's all you need I, di- I did my due diligence and i watched videos from horror movies of women bathing in blood you know i had to do it it mm-hmm. was for research it was for research. It was for research. These cruelties were kept to peasant girls for the most part until around 1609 when Elizabeth opened up what is known as a gynaceum. A gynaceum is basically a finishing school for daughters of lesser nobility to learn manners and etiquette to prepare for Viennese court. Elizabeth needed money and also wasn't getting as many girls from the peasants anymore since they were f- refusing to send their girls to Cheta. <laughs> yeah, I think. If you, Shocker. Yeah, if you could ever imagine why. <laughs> yeah. However, these daughters of nobility were treated in much the same way that the servants' girls were. Within three weeks of their arrivals, all of her students were dead. Wow, went through them quick. My God. That is nuts. She originally had the girls buried with ceremony, but eventually it was too time-consuming to do all of them with ceremony, so she would just bury them without ceremony. But her deeds weren't going unnoticed anymore. Those in town had been spreading rumors about her cruelty, and the local priests were trying to get these accusations to those in power. And eventually, after daughters of the nobility began to go missing, it couldn't be ignored anymore. She just had to test the other nobility. I mean, it kind of goes back to what you said with, uh, like, accusing others, like, in the nobility. Like, when you provide the context. Like, once the nobles start going missing, that's when people actually start noticing. Exactly. It just shows how much care was given to the life of a servant at this, or a peasant mm-hmm. at this time. Nobody cares till you got money. Yep. It's the concept for serial killers of, like, the less dead. Like, back in the mm-hmm. 70s and 60s when serial killers were killing black prostitutes mm-hmm. and no one cared because they were, like, the less dead, like, barely right. noticeable. Yeah. Similar to that, it's just very sad how society overlooks people even though everyone's a human being, you know? Yeah. Right. So word eventually reached King Matthias II and he was tasked, he tasked the royal palatine the most important official in the kingdom behind the king and his wife, as I mentioned earlier, to investigate Bathory and her crimes. That royal palatine's name was George Thurzo. Wow, oh, that no came way. back like full circle. Oh, yeah. George Thurzo was born into one of the richest and most powerful families in Hungary, but was born into the nobility that he inherited. Being that his family was relatively new to the noble ranks, he had to work his way into a worthy position. So he served in the Viennese courts and started a working relationship with Archduke Matthias and stayed loyal to him until he became emperor. So 
even though it's another trend where he's rich and powerful, it's an it's a case where his family wasn't believed to have been from Hungary originally, so they kind of had to make their own way. And his father started a metalworking company with another guy, and they made like millions of dollars back in the day. And so that's how they got their money. But he still had to kind of prove himself as a noble. So he just befriended Archduke Matthias, and then Archduke Matthias became emperor. <laughs> so yeah. that helps. Wow, right. that workout. Around the same time, he began his military career and served alongside Francis Nadasdi, eventually becoming companions and attending each other's children's weddings. But their relationship eventually cooled, but no one really knows why. So it's not clear, as is nothing else in this story. <laughs> George Thurzo quickly gained a reputation for ruthlessness, beheading a Hungarian war hero for a small crime, and burning his neighbor's estate on a false accusation of theft. Jeez. So this guy is not the best person either. <laughs> There's just no one in the story yet that you're like, wow, what a hero. Honestly, Francis Nadasdi's probably the best person, and all he did was kill a bunch of people in war. So, I mean, I, I mean he tortured his servants, but like for the time period, that's just... Right. An everyday thing. So right. morally speaking, for the time period, he was kind of the best one. Yeah. In the following years, George and Elizabeth had cordial communication and she attended another family wedding of his. But tensions between the two were rising as he could see how powerful she was. She had more property than Thurzo, despite the fact that he was now in the most powerful civilian position in Hungary as royal palatine. Elizabeth had even attempted to claim another citadel for herself with a garrison of her own soldiers after it was left to her by a rebellious relative. And it was at this point that it was viewed that her property should be devolved and passed to the male children or children-in-law to allow them to pursue their political duties instead of leaving her with the land. It was with this backdrop that Matthias heard the accusations against Elizabeth and shortly thereafter passed the word to Thurzo to attend to it. In the early months of the year 1610, George Thurzo began to inquire into the accusations by investigating villages near Elizabeth's estate. By May, he extended his search and was even joined by the sons-in-law of Elizabeth. And by this point, Elizabeth knew there were accusations being leveled against her. She even took a widow to a county court and had the widow admit that, while her daughter was in the care of Elizabeth, the girl had died. But it was the result of an illness and no cruelty by Elizabeth. So the Countess was making moves to defend herself in the eyes of the law. And at the time, there was even a practice of admitting the cause that you caused the death of a servant, and all you did was compensate the family monetarily. But Elizabeth refused this option, which is interesting. You killed my daughter, so a couple bucks, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> she had a, legally a way out if the daughter did die by accident. Yeah, at this point, it just became not, it didn't even become about the money. She got a bloodlust. Yeah, and it just shows that she thought she was above the law. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. She knew how powerful she was, so she thought she so was untouchable. So nobody can touch me. I don't need to do anything. Yeah. That's, man. Woo! Tensions were rising, not only between Thurzo and Elizabeth, but also between Matthias and Elizabeth, because he had still not paid back the loan that Elizabeth and Francis had paid the Habsburgs during the war, and she was constantly asking for repayment. Elizabeth, around this time, even contacted her cousin, King Gabor Bathory of Poland, late in 1610, to get passage to his kingdom. But she remained at her, her estate, eventually hosting Matthias and Thurzo in person 
for a Christmas Eve celebration. That's wild. Like, the amount of cleaning that probably had to be done. It's just how bold is that to have the two most powerful people in the kingdom of Hungary who are actively investigating you for crimes of murder, Mm -hmm. which are like... And not, and not just regular murder. You're talking torture and binding and removing parts of people's asses and then feeding it to them. Yeah. yeah. And you're just going to let them waltz right in like, would you like some champagne? <laughs> <laughs> oh, please go get them more. More please. hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> more hors d'oeuvres, please. See? They're not, they're not being harmed. They love it here. But at the celebration, George Thurzo confronted Elizabeth about the rumors about her and asked her if they were true. She replied that the girls had died from illness or disease. But when Thurzo continued to pressure her, she left the banquet in anger. And her own house. <laughs> own house. I'm going to my room. On December 29th, 1610, George Thurzo and a cadre of soldiers and Elizabeth's sons-in-law stormed into the Countess's castle. It was said that along their way throughout the estate, the soldiers found one dead girl in the hallway who had been beaten to death. Three of the servants, who would be arrested immediately, were cleaning up another beating. Elizabeth herself was alongside them, her sleeves rolled up, and her clothing covered in blood. She was captured and confined to one of the buildings on the estate, where she would be imprisoned for the remainder of her days. Thurzo made a public announcement in the nearby village that Countess Elizabeth Bathory was under arrest for the act of murder, a rare crime for a noblewoman. Elizabeth's faith that her status would save her had failed. Man. Finally gets caught. Finally got it. But talk about a movie scene. Honestly. Her her former friend and husband's former companion and her daughter's husbands all storm into your castle to capture you. That is insane. And you had a way out to do it by literally just paying the family of the people that you killed. Yeah. And just you didn't do it. Leave a paper trail and not just like a rumor that Give, you, your yeah. girl killed by While disease. also demanding that all of your money that you lent out to people needs to be repaid. You give me well. my money. Give me my money. You yeah. can't have my money. Bury me And I'm going to kill anybody money. that gets in my way. Talk about a psychotic episode. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Talk That's... about a psychotic podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> the three female servants, Elona, Catalin, and Dora... Dorotia were Doritos. taken. <laughs> that's a, that's a name right there. I swear. Were taken to some of the outbuildings along with a fourth servant, the former teenage boy who arrived when Anna Darvula showed up, Fitzko. The four were tortured and interrogated, all confessing to the crimes of their lady countess. Torture in Hungary followed a procedure. First, the captured person would be stripped naked and restrained, and then shown the tools of torture. If that didn't elicit a confession. The tools would be used in casual ways to inflict some pain. And if that didn't work, the more intense tools and methods were employed, which sometimes ended lethally. I always think about, like, if I was ever in the situation of just about to go through this, I'd probably, I'd probably confess almost immediately for me. Oh, yeah. If they yeah. just, like, showed me a buzzsaw while I'm naked, I'm like, it was me. I just like, it, it was, was me. I thought yep. it was funny that they're like, all right, first round. Look at this. Is that going to make you confess? <laughs> Look at my tools. Yeah. Listen, listen, man. It's like New Year's Eve. I'm naked in a, a probably stone cellar. Right. It's just fucking cold in here. <laughs> I, can I just get a blanket? <laughs> Please. Oh. 
All four of these servants confessed to the various tortures we listed earlier and claimed the number of victims to be ranging from 30 to 50. Later interviews from the villages and the priests had claims of higher numbers ranging into triple digits, and as we mentioned in the intro, up to 600 victims. My God. Of the three servants, all but Catalin were executed, and she was left alive but imprisoned for life. Elizabeth remained walled in her home until August 21st, 1614, when she was found dead in her room, most likely from heart failure. She was initially buried in her castle's graveyard, but was moved to an undisclosed location when the villagers complained. The reign of the blood countess Elizabeth Bathory Nadasdy, or Nadasdy Bathory, I, I don't know, had ended. <laughs> Man. I can't imagine being one of those servants either, and... I- Finally, after seeing so many people being killed in front of you and having to, you know, clean up the mess from all of that and, you know, losing parts of your limbs and having parts of my body cut up, getting beat within an inch of my life, confessing to all of it after the women who put me through that and made my life an absolute living hell to then confessing to that in an open court and just going, well, you still did it, so uh, you die anyway. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> hey, that's a raw oh deal. Oh, my yeah. God. It, it is pretty crazy. I don't crazy. even know what I, I, at that point, I just, I just run out and be like, you know what? I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to go take my chances in the woods. I'm Right, I'm out. yeah. It is also insane that, like, most accounts say that the majority of her fatal tortures mm-hmm. happened after her husband died, which was in 1604. So... From 1604 to 1610, six years, that's when all of this happened, pretty much. Or she went on a streak. So six if, years. So if, if we take the assumption that 50, the higher number of the servants' testimonies, mm-hmm. is true, that's almost 10 people a year. That's like one a month, almost. That's insane. That is absolutely nuts. And if you go with like the larger triple-digit number of 600, that's just... Yeah, that's truly yeah. an insane amount. And then like, the ash having to be spread in the room yeah. to clean up all the blood. And it just, my God. My God. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the truth in this story? That is, I, what I just told is the popular recounting of mm. events for the most part. So that's what most of the sources you'll read, especially online, of Elizabeth Bathory will say. But since a lot of what was passed down to her was word of mouth, and most records in Hungary around this period were destroyed or lost in the upheaval of the country, and due to the loss of reputation for Elizabeth, it's hard to sift through the truth and the hearsay. So let's try and break this down as best we can, and as I said at the beginning, clean the mud off the story. <laughs> and one thing I do want to say right before we get into this, like the hit them relying mostly on word of mouth was common in Hungary at the time. That mm-hmm. was a practice. Uh, they didn't rely in court on written testimony or physical evidence. Mm-hmm. They based everything on a confession. So the confession was the most important thing that they could get. That's what they needed. And that's why torture was in- used so much. It's yeah. like we literally have their personal like, assistant or like the personal servant like wrote in their journal that, hey, they did, they're doing these things. It's like, no, they got to say it. Yeah. Right. So we're going to start from the beginning at Elizabeth's childhood. The evidence for her suffering from epilepsy is mostly an educated guess by those that have written about her. And major books written rarely ever cite a source mm. for where they heard this. 
She never reported any suffering in regards to her sanity in her letters, and the priests that visited her after her arrest to hear her confession say that while she was confined, she didn't say anything about it either. So without any evidence, it's impossible to say either way, but personally, I would say that the needle sways more to the side of being sane in this respect. Right. But mm-hmm. you can lean one way or another, and that's why, with all of this, that's why it's so hard to pick a side for some people. Right. Well, that, I mean, yeah, especially if she didn't even say anything at all after that. Because if everything was based on confession, too, then that's... And you'd think that, like, if a priest yeah. is visiting her to try and get a confession and doesn't say anything about her acting like a psychopath, mm-hmm. then she might just have been an evil bitch. Yeah, <laughs> evil, very true. Just, just an evil lady. She could have just been an evil lady, yeah. Continuing with the childhood influences, her Aunt Clara, the bisexual mit- witch and murderess... More than, that. <laughs> more than likely did not have as big of an influence on Elizabeth as some say. She may have visited, but it would have been most likely infrequent since she was married to an Italian noble, so she was living way far away. So traveling from Ita- uh, an Italian province to Hungary probably would have been a, quite the trip back you know, in 1600. Right, and the old horse. It was also Man. said that she had an, uh, at one point an incestuous relationship with Elizabeth, but these he, writings included yeah. sensationalized aspects of the story and came from a book written by Valentine Penrose called The Bloody Countess. And Penrose was a poet and not a historian, but she did use primary sources and refuted some of the myths around, surrounding Elizabeth. So it's really hard to tell in her book what's exaggerated flowery language and mm. what was the true stuff. Mm. So once again, it's pretty hard to say if Clara really had an impact on Elizabeth when she was a child. Mm. As far as the illegitimate child with a peasant, there are no documents to state this, and only one claim to have found a document has ever been made, and said document has never been presented. So there is little evidence to believe that she was anything but faithful to her husband, and the two had a respectful and dedicated marriage. She was not a cold and uncaring mother and wife, as the letters made it seem. That was just the common type of communication made back then. Romantic letters were relatively uncommon between couples. They weren't unheard of. Uh, George Thurzo's parents and Francis's parents were said to have both been couples that rare, like, were rare, that they exchanged romantic communications in the forms of letters Mm -hmm. uh the main focus for letters though usually especially for a woman writing to her husband on the war front would be relatively short and discuss how the family especially the children were faring most of the childhood rumors appear to have tainted the concept of putting modern ideology onto a centuries-old story Uh, a lot of what what is perceived about serial killers today cannot be necessarily retrofitted to fit elizabeth bathory's story So attempting to find a childhood cause would help explain her later behavior, but it also pushes more dubious narratives. Mm -hmm. And as I said, you're trying to put standards for a modern day philosophy onto a much different society and time period than now. Mm -hmm. So now we get to the important part. Did Elizabeth Bathory kill anyone? And if so, how many? Or, as some have suggested, was she targeted due to her status as a wealthy and powerful widow with a debt owed to her? In short, she almost certainly did have a scary body count. Mm -hmm. Uh, While there are a few documents that list direct evidences of guilt, the confessions do speak to her crimes. And now I know what you're going to say. The servants were tortured. How could their confessions be trusted? Which is fair. 
Yeah. Spot on uh, impersonation of public opinion. That's all of our <laughs> listeners. That's imagine all of our listeners sound. <laughs> yeah, just a combined, a combined like voiceover. <laughs> all of our loving and wonderful listeners. Actually. Yes. <laughs> that is fair, but you have to understand the judicial system at the time. This wasn't the unjustified trials and torture which were used in witch trials that most people associate with the justice system around this time period. Uh, Hungary's witch trials came much later, nearly a century after Elizabeth Bathory. And according to Rachel Bledsaw, quote, the use of judicial t- torture was considered necessary and expected to ensure a proper trial under the inquisitional system, end quote. They just loved torture back then. <laughs> like that it's- was just part of everyday life. Not even just the judicial system. Violence was a part of everyday life. Well, and as, as I mentioned, the confession was paramount. So how are you going to get a confession? Torture them. Swear. Yeah. In practice, the tortures lasted no longer than 30 minutes, and the defendant would be given a day or so to rest to think before the next session would commence. So the torture was not meant to maim or kill, just cause injuries that could heal. And once the judge recorded a confession from the accused, they would wait for a period of time to allow the tortured person to compose themselves, and then the confession would be read back to them to see if they confirmed what was said. If they recanted, then more torture sessions would be endured. But if a person survived three sessions without a confession, victims were usually let go. So perhaps the confessions were coerced, but the fact that all four of the main servant confessions were all very similar and recounted similar victim numbers lends them a lot more credence. Right. They definitely saw things. Like, there's no way they made up just 50 of the most gruesome things we've ever heard. Right. And when you mm. hear the tor- that the servants were tortured, I mean, not that this is good, but a torture session that lasts 30 minutes and then you have a full day mm. in between the next one. Right. I mean, that gives you a lot of time to think. So if they were trying to, like get themselves out of it by lying i mean you could easily come up with a story in that amount of time Mm -hmm. so that does lend a little less credibility to it i suppose if you really wanted to say they could have made up a story but the fact that they all lined up i that kind of makes it more believable in Mm -hmm. my eyes right and like that kill counts all between 30 and 50 like that makes that makes sense right and all of the torture methods were similar all of the recounting of where they were buried and stuff Mm mm-hmm The later interviews that listed numbers as high as 600 are undoubtedly exaggerated. The only mention of a number this high came from a secondhand recounting of a witness who had heard someone else say that they saw a written list of victims and it was over 600 names. So the number of victims is more likely near the 30 to 50 that the servants claims, although it could be slightly higher if the servants believed they could get more leeway in sentencing if the number was lower. So, it is plausible to say that it could be from 30 to 100, maybe. Right. It's interesting that the one source of the 600 came from a secondhand recounting of a witness. Yeah. Like, of someone that, like, heard about it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just crazy to think about how all of these poor servants were just tortured and beaten and all of this. And then... You even have to question whether or not they were telling the truth about all of that. Because I can't, I mean, personally, I don't know why I would even lie about yeah. 
any of that. You have nothing to prove to anyone at that point. Like, yeah, it, especially if my if my life isn't even valued as the same just because yeah. of where we stand in society. Right, at that I, point and you think too maybe if I do confess, they'll they'll still kill me. Well, not even that at the time though. It's like maybe if I do confess, they'll give me like a life in prison yeah. instead of executing me so right, like one of right. them got life in prison so i mean there was some incentive i suppose to mm-hmm. maybe confessing and to discount elizabeth's claims that her servants did all the killing would have meant that those servants would have had to have traveled to all the different estates where the deaths occurred oh and uh that whole bathing in tubs of blood thing that's basically entirely debunked right yeah that was a <laughs> that one was a stretch yeah the first account of it came decades after her arrest and there's no real evidence for it so it's yeah. just, just taking a story and making it more crazy Fair. as far as the conspiracy goes against her as a powerful woman this doesn't have a great foundation either elizabeth respectfully managed her estates and rarely overstepped her bounds she may have stepped on some toes along the way but nothing to really justify the king and the palatine specifically targeting for a crime like murder Women at the time period were allowed to inherit estates from their husbands and were even supported in Poland and Hungary at doing this around the time. And even if the king wanted to get rid of her because of his debt, custom dictated that the repayment would continue down the line to Elizabeth's son when he was old enough. So this would mean that he would have effectively had to have get rid of the entire Bathory line. So And like they have a lot of siblings. Like, yeah, I don't think that was a really I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> it's not really a plausible scenario. He might have stepped on some toes literally and figuratively. Yeah. But uh, you know <laughs> yeah. I think um I think that's not gonna happen. <laughs> as far as Thurzo following proper procedure for arresting the Countess, uh the law did state that anyone, even a peasant, could arrest someone who was charged with murder at the time. So, man, even if he didn't do it, and the war, like the warrant was out there to arrest her, anyone could have just grabbed her and arrested her. Huh. Which wow. is interesting. Payback uh, time. <laughs> yeah, right. She never did face a trial, which is a point that skeptics bring up. But it's not because of some scheme against Elizabeth. It's actually the opposite. So. You remember how Thurzo made an agreement with yeah. Francis Nadasdi on his deathbed to yeah, take yeah, care of the right. family. Yeah. He never forgot about that. He got caught between his promise and his duty and had to come up with the only viable solution that he really could to satisfy both sides. Mm. He did not conspire with the sons-in-law to get Elizabeth. Rather, he organized with them to have Elizabeth imprisoned without a proper trial specifically to save their family name from being tarnished when Elizabeth was officially declared guilty in trial and executed. Because once she died, her crimes with her, died with her, mm-hmm. and she could not be tried, and the family would not be implicated alongside her if she didn't have a trial, thus maintaining their noble status. So this was Thurzo fulfilling his civic duties to the king and honoring his promise the only way that he could. Man. Yeah, that dude's... Uh... Probably the best out of this entire story. Ah, he's, a, he's a ride or die for Nagasdi. I, uh, I mean, he did sure. burn down his neighbor's estate. Yeah. I mean, fair. <laughs> yeah, fair. The guy's still crazy. But. The, the yeah. story literally went that like he had some stuff stolen from his cellar, and he just assumed it was them, even though it was probably his servants in cooperation I with someone else. Say. And he just literally went to the neighboring village and burned a bunch of shit down. <laughs> With no apology afterwards. My stuff got stolen, oh and I know it was you. Are you sure? No, but I'm going to burn it. <laughs> no, but I brought a torch. <laughs> this, yeah, this fire has something to say about it. Yeah. 
So the important question here, why did she kill? Well, that is the question. <laughs> There's the a reason question. why it is a question. We really have no conclusive evidence for why, but the reports that Anna Dorvila pushed Elizabeth to the point of murder may contribute to it. Since most of the fatal violence occurred after Francis died, the stresses may have been too much for Elizabeth, and she became more prone to violent outbursts and eventually saw no harm in killing the servants. And once she got away with it, she saw no reason to stop and continued killing for either stress relief or enjoyment, whatever you want to say. Them damn bisexual witches. Yeah, always, <laughs> always leading to death. Always them damn bisexual witches. I, I killed four away. of my husbands. Why don't you kill somebody? <laughs> swear. <laughs> she lived in a landscape filled with violence, so perhaps she just got accustomed to it and took it a step too far. I mean... I mean, if it was kind of the societal norm, especially among nobles, probably very easy to get swept up in that. Yeah. As terrible as that is to say, it's probably very easy to just get caught up in the, caught up in the moment and then just yeah. kind of, I'd say that's probably the most respectable and most educated answer is that, and I'm more than likely pushed her to the edge and with all the stressors, she just kind of snapped. And that's why it's so important for this story specifically to take into account the context historically of the area she lived in mm -hmm. and what societal norms were. Because, as I mentioned, putting modern day norms onto this story just mm -hmm. does not work. No, not at all. I mean, if you tried to incorporate something like that in today's society, like if, if Jeffrey Bezos just snapped one day and started just killing people across all his warehouses. Right. I mean, yeah. he basically uh, I, mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. But it's, it, it's not like, th it's not that this way. You yeah, know? It's, it's not him in a dungeon. Yeah, like, it's not him in a dungeon with a flogger just beating the piss out of this poor woman for, yeah. you know, existing. So now I have my own personal pet theory that I haven't seen anywhere else. And I don't know if it's, there's, I don't know if there's real evidence for this, and it, this is just my thought process, so mm -hmm. kind of take it for what it is, but I thought it was interesting. So in early modern Europe, religion was extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that Elizabeth was raised and lived as a Calvinist. And in the Calvinism sect of Christianity, there's a belief in predestination. So the concept of predestination basically states that a person is born into the world with the determination of whether they will go to heaven or hell and cannot change that position through anything that they do. Hmm. Okay. So, so you're born into the world, one side or the other. Nothing you can do can change that. So this meant that Elizabeth may have gotten the idea that she was either saved or that she was damned. And for either side, her actions would not change her destination after she died. So yeah. this may have allowed her leeway in her actions to be as despicable as she wanted because the end result was going to be the same either way. Yeah, and we won't get into it now, but Calvinists were a little, little shady at the beginning of the their little sect of Christianity. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you think about it, they if I'm already determined that I'm going to heaven, I can kill as many people as I want. And if I'm already going to hell, then... Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> we ball. <laughs> hey. There we go. So, Francis was not a Calvinist, he was a Lutheran. So, while he was alive, he may have tried to influence her beliefs enough mm. to tame her actions, and then once he was gone, she had no one to restrain her anymore. So, this may not have played nearly as an important role as I'm making it out to be, but I just found it interesting, nonetheless, and I thought it deserved to at least be mentioned. Yeah. Uh, whether you buy into that is all up to you. I'm not saying that I know any better than anyone else who's looked at this, I'm just saying that... Well, that's it's, a, it's a really solid point. I didn't even know Calvin what Calvinism was. So, yeah. Right. That's a very 
I could easily see that being a key part of why she did it. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, if there's no repercussions in her mind, like, slash away. I mean, what do you think about it, too? I mean, the witch hunts are all based on religious fervor. So, I mean, what is stopping that from maintaining itself to one evil woman right versus an entire town and right. especially in a woman in her position where woman it's just her position free to do that it. time period yeah so i don't know it's I, it's interesting very very whatever the case elizabeth bathory will go down in history as one of the most controversial and blood-soaked females ever okay literally yeah <laughs> <laughs> arguments over her guilt or innocence will continue until we find new evidence that proves one way or another how the story played out Regardless, Elizabeth Bathory has influenced history even to the modern day. And as I mentioned earlier, American Horror Story comes up again. In the acclaimed television series, Lady Gaga played a character named the Countess in the hotel season of the show that was inspired by Elizabeth Bathory. No way. Huh. Some claims have been levied that she inspired Bram Stoker in his writing of Dracula, but those are more unsubstantiated. But even just the fact that he, her name has been associated with one of the most famous vampire figures ever mm-hmm, shows mm-hmm. how much she's kind of wormed her way into the fabric of society. Yep. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a band named after her, Bathory. Yep. Uh, there's another band that I just found this year called Blood Countess, who is fan- another fantastic black metal band. So still f- continues to this day. <laughs> Insane. Elizabeth Bathory, the Blood Countess, Countess Dracula, or whatever name you want to give her, was truly one of a kind, either nefariously or tragically, or perhaps both. And hopefully, this episode has helped to shed a bit more light on her story. And that is the R version of the story of Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah, Don't emphasis worry. on, like again, R plus or E plus on this episode, <laughs> yeah. I swear, I swear. And emphasis on our version of the story. Yeah. We're that's... not saying that we're more correct than anyone else. This mm-hmm. is just our research and what we came up with. So Yeah, very interesting lady. I mean, <laughs> to say the least. To yeah, say, to say the, the least. least. To put it to very lightly, least. I guess. The murdering Jeff Bezos of Hungary. Is that going to be the title of that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Oh, man. But if you want to continue the conversation with us with the Gems of History podcast, you can find us on all of our social medias on Twitter at Gems underscore History and then YouTube, TikTok and Instagram at Gems of History podcast. And I know Jacob's been doing some awesome video content for you guys. Just one minute quick hitting videos uh, every single Friday. So definitely check those out. I mean, they're very informational and very well done. Yeah. So I just put one up because we're recording this on Friday, so I just put one up today on the Little Rock crisis, and it's very interesting. So if you want to go hear more about that, follow us on YouTube, subscribe, like. That really helps the channel out, gets us more exposure. And they're also on our Instagram and stuff, so follow us everywhere. Uh, Dylan, do you have anything you would like to plug? I just want to say thanks for having me on the show, man. I mean, this is... This was really cool. I didn't know about any of this. I came into this completely blind. Yeah, he specifically told me he didn't want to know anything. Yep, I did not want to know anything because I wanted to be educated and I wanted to learn about, you know, just more interesting things that I wouldn't be able to find in, you know, my history book. Right. And this was definitely (laughs) one of those things. Definitely not a history (laughs) book. Definitely not a history book. (laughs) That was crazy. I can't, like, 600 people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she still has the record, whether it's true or not. So I guess she has that. Yep. But yeah, where can uh, people find you? Where can people find your band? You guys got any cool stuff coming up with the band? Yeah, yeah. We got a couple of cool things coming up. Um, so, well, you can find my band everywhere at just at Vapid Soul Band. Uh, again, if you like Corn, if you like Elf Wolf, if you like Kane Hill, Plot and You, 
metal uh, stuff. Slipknot metal stuff. <laughs> if you like breakdowns with new metal parts, then you're going to love my band. <laughs> um, but you can find us everywhere. We dropped our first single, Switchblade, a couple months ago. You can find the music video on BVTV on YouTube. Um, otherwise, you can find me anywhere. Uh, my username is at vapid underscore Dylan, and you can find me anywhere. And you guys have a show coming up, right? Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple of shows coming up. It'll actually one... be the week that this comes out. They've got a show. Yeah, 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 <laughs> hey, yeah. Nice. Uh, we'll have one this Friday. Uh, we'll be playing up in Green Bay at the Lyric Room, playing with Friends and Errors of Humanity, Bottom Shelf, uh, Ashes of Alexis, and a band called Source. And that one's going to be really fun. And then in a week after that, we're playing with Attila again. We're playing at the Miramar Theater. I'm very stoked for that one. Tala's, uh, Tala's going to be playing there, too, if you guys don't oh, know shit. them. <laughs> Yeah, that's I'm so intimidated, but I'm so excited. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. Uh, we got another single, too. Uh, might as well plug that on here. We got mm-hmm. another single called Fallout. That'll be coming out soon. Uh, another video from Dylan Gould. Uh, everything's coming together very nicely with that one. That entire thing is uh, that actually that whole song is actually written while the Capitol was getting raided. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we were in the studio trying to write this uh, dystopian sort of sound, and we weren't sure how to figure it out. And that was when uh, the first brick originally got thrown through the window. All of a sudden, the live streams just started popping off. My phone started going nuts while oh, I was wow. sitting at the sitting at the desk and recording with Troy and Luke. And we all of us just started looking at our stuff, going, "What the hell is happening wow. right, right now?" So. Crazy. Uh, yeah, it's just comparing <laughs> that riot to uh, all the other events and gems of history that, <laughs> <laughs> that have uh, unfortunately, you know, plagued the earth. So it's just trying to expose more people to the idea of like, hey, maybe we really haven't changed that much. Yeah. And maybe we should take a step back and kind of realize what we are doing as humanity to try and just make ourselves better in cool. the long run. So love awesome. that. Yeah, yeah. Love, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's gonna be a lot of fun. So yeah, if you yeah. like uh if you like metalcore, you like metal music, go follow follow Dylan and his band. They're they're awesome. So thank mm. you. Follow Vapid Soul. But I think that kind of wraps everything up for us today. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, the one of the more blood soaked episodes that we've done. <laughs> right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think we're taking a week off after this one. Evan and I are both going to be very busy in the coming weeks, so we're going to kind of take some time for ourselves, kind of plan out the next few weeks for the podcast so we can get everything organized and bring you guys the best possible content. We don't want to rush rush into stuff and kind of give you guys a a C-plus episode. Right. (laughs) So yeah, everyone have a great week this week and next week, and we will talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Everyone out there, stay polished and... Go follow us on YouTube so you can watch my shorts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Thank you for having me.